In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Again, let me welcome those back who have been away for Christmas at homes or at friends, uh, just traveling. Uh, it's good to see you, see you all back, and we're glad that you're here. So we celebrate today the baptism of our Lord, which always happens on the first Sunday of um, Epiphany. And I can't help but to lament just a wee bit, because for 10 years, I always celebrated this feast day in Rome uh, with students at St. Peter's, that small church you may have heard about. And so um, this is our second year of not doing that trip, but it's always nice to be here. And it actually gives me an opportunity to write sermons for the baptism of our Lord, which is something that I didn't do for many years because I wasn't here to preach. And today's reading from Luke is an interesting one, in part because uh, Luke, maybe of all the gospel writers except for John, um, so out of the synoptics, Luke's the one who kind of, I don't want to say downplay, that's not the right word, but he, he's the one whose account of the baptism um, kind of separates the work of John and the work of Jesus uh, a little bit. Um, but what caught my attention, uh, and one of the things I just wanted to flag for us in the reading was, um, I had never noticed this before, right? One of those moments where you're reading the Bible, it's always a happy moment. You go, wow, I've never, I've never noticed that before. But that was in verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, and I thought, wait, other people got to be baptized on the same day as Jesus? I mean, I think that makes sense. I probably knew that intuitively, but to think that like, yeah, well, I was baptized on this day with this kid named Jesus who was in my school class, and then like a dove came down and a voice spoke. I don't know. It was pretty cool, but that's the day I was baptized, right? So, so there were other people being baptized that day by John, but Jesus, of course, also submitted himself uh, to baptism. So we have quickly, you know, if we think about the liturgical year, we have quickly gone from the birth of Jesus uh, to, a, to an infant, a toddler of some age when the wise men come at Epiphany, and now here we are thinking about the adult Jesus getting ready to enter into his uh, earthly ministry. But again, it's the baptism of our Lord, and it's, it's uh, unfortunate that we aren't having a baptism of our own tonight, but, uh, but at the same time, we get to reflect on the fact that in the New Testament, there's a direct connection between baptism and the receiving of the Holy Spirit. And we reenact that in our baptism. So if you remember Nehemiah's baptism, which was the last one we had not just a month ago, um, we, right, we give that candle because of the illumination of the Holy Spirit. We anointed um, Nehemiah, right, because he has been sealed by the Holy Spirit of Christ own forever. So we do that because in the New Testament, there's a connection between baptism and the receiving of the Holy Spirit. Thus, when we read the Acts chapter 8 passage tonight, when we think about that, something seems wrong when we read the Acts chapter 8 passage because those Samaritans who have come to faith there in Acts chapter 8, they didn't receive the Spirit at their baptism. So the New Testament has set us up, if you will, to expect that when someone gets baptized, they're going to receive the Holy Spirit. And, and no one more so than, than Jesus, if you will, when we talk about thinking about the way the, the biblical text encourages us to think. So these Samaritans in Acts chapter 8 have not received the Holy Spirit at their baptism. Right? But this is a significant moment in the, in the book of Acts because uh, Acts 1 had told us that the gospel was going to leave Jerusalem and Judea and go where? Samaria, 
and then to the other ends of the earth. And so here in Acts 8, we see the gospel going to the Samaritans, right? This group of people that were often despised by the Jews, right? Because they had, they were, they were uh, Jewish people from the northern kingdom who had married non-Jewish people after the Assyrian captivity in 722. And so for years, there had been this back and forth between the Jewish people and the Samaritans about where proper worship was supposed to happen. They both claimed it was in their location. And if you think about the Gospel of John, the woman at the well, they pick up on some of that discussion. Right? So there's a, there's, a, there's a way of thinking maybe they don't receive the Holy Spirit at their baptism because they're different. Right? They're like, they're like a group of people we haven't really spent much time thinking about, if you will, in the history of the church. But, but I don't think that's the point, that if Luke is the author of Acts, and it appears that he is, he seems to be flagging for us, like, stop, pay attention, reflect on the fact that these people did not receive the Holy Spirit at their baptism. But what do we see in the text then? So if we stop and reflect on Acts chapter 8, verses 14 through 17, what do we see? Well, we do see that they receive the Holy Spirit, but only through the intercession of Peter and John. So in this sense, the the coming of the Holy Spirit isn't just connected to baptism. It is in the sense that the Samaritans have submitted themselves to baptism, but it also seems that the coming of the Holy Spirit is connected to the ministry of the apostles, those men who had walked with Jesus, who had been with Jesus, right? So Philip is actually the evangelist who's out in Samaria doing the work, but Peter and John are the ones who seem to bring a kind of authority to the situation that then brings the Holy Spirit onto the Samaritans. So again, the first thing to note is that the coming of the Holy Spirit in this text seems to be connected with the ministry of the apostles. The second thing to notice is that John and Peter prayed. Verse 15, we're told, they prayed. John answered them all saying, I baptize, sorry, wrong text. Uh, Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. So Peter and John come and pray for these Samaritans to receive the Holy Spirit. Right? So connect it to this apostolic authority, connect it to their praying for the gift of the Holy Spirit to come on these recently baptized believers. And then verse 17, Peter and John laid their hands on them. And after that prayer, and after that laying on of hands, then they receive the Holy Spirit. Now again, we're, we should be surprised because this is not necessarily how it had happened in other situations, right? That it, it wasn't, this giving of the Spirit wasn't connected to apostolic authority. It didn't seem to be connected to prayer. It, it didn't seem to, to need the intercession of particular people coming and then praying and laying hands on these people. But, but all of this, I think, together, what it does is it establishes the identity of the Samaritans, right? In one sense, they are no longer Samaritans, but they are now Christians, that they have been ministered to by the apostles, that they have had the apostles pray for them, that they have had the apostles lay their hands on them and received the gift of the Holy Spirit. So their identity has now changed, right? They're no longer Samaritans, they are Christians. And as Luke, through the Acts of the Apostles, keeps changing 
everything, turning everything on its head, we, we have a hard time, I have a hard time, I shouldn't say we, uh, I have a hard time entering into the space to think about what Luke is saying and doing is radical, right? I miss the point that this activity in the early church is, is crazy. I mean, this would have been like, no one would have been eating a meal without talking about these things that are going on, right? Did you hear about what happened over in Samaria? My goodness, Samaritans came to faith. And they receive the Holy Spirit. What do you mean they, of all people, receive the Holy Spirit? Right? And then there's Gentiles who are completely just removed from that kind of internecine argument between the Jews and the Samaritans going, well, this is cool. It must be for everyone, right? Because what about us? Right? There's a moment of the what about us? Because they haven't had that explicit uh, attempt to come and evangelize them yet. And so no one is, you know, everyone's talking about this and we need to enter into the space to see the significance that people submit themselves to faith, that two apostles come along and pray for them and lay their hands on them. And then they receive the Holy Spirit, giving them this new identity as Christians. And we don't do this anymore, but historically in the history of the church, people would take baptismal names right? And part of that would be to, to mark their new identity in Christ, right? So we don't, we don't do that anymore. At least we don't make it explicit. We wouldn't be against it if someone took a baptismal name, but uh, we've had people in this church take confirmation names. And so, but, but marking that new identity. So these Samaritans walk away Christians empowered and imbued with the Holy Spirit. But then when we go back and reflect on Jesus's baptism that we celebrate today, we actually see that we shouldn't have been maybe all that surprised after all. Because back in Jesus' baptism, we see that the coming of the Holy Spirit is connected with Jesus himself. Right? He didn't need a Peter and a John. Why? Well, because he's God. How do we know he's God? Well, the voice is going to tell us in a minute that he's God, right? So the, the coming of the Holy Spirit here is connected directly to Jesus himself. It's, it's his ministry. Now, the apostles are those who get to continue the ministry of Jesus, and hence Peter and John's role in coming to the Samaritans. But, but in Jesus' case, he himself is the authority that brings the Holy Spirit, if you will. He submitting himself to this baptism, right, in his humanity, is what gives the authority of the coming of the Holy Spirit. Furthermore, not only were there other people there, which got my attention this week, but I also saw, and again, I've seen this before, but I maybe noticed again with fresh eyes that Jesus prayed. Now, one commentator I read said, well, clearly this must have happened at some later time. There's got to be some amount of time between the baptism and the prayer. I don't, I don't think that's necessary, but in any case, Jesus prayed, we're told in verse 21, and then the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended. So again, just like Peter and John prayed for the Samaritans to receive the Holy Spirit, Jesus prays, and I can only surmise that maybe Jesus is asking his Father for the gifting of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because he's getting ready to enter intentionally into his public ministry. And I think Acts chapter 10, verses um, 48 through 52, I think, um, sorry, I didn't write that down. I think those are the right verses, but in Acts chapter 10, um, Luke records for us that Jesus is empowered. He's anointed with the Holy Spirit, and it's hard not to think that that's not what happened at his baptism. So Jesus prays, and then the heavens were opened, and then the Holy Spirit descends on him. And then the other thing to notice is the Holy Spirit, as a dove, descends. And it's at that point that God the Father declares that Jesus is his beloved Son. 
Now, this is not the only time that the Father says this. He says it at the Transfiguration, but this would be the first time that we know of that in a public ministry setting that the Father declares the identity of this Jesus of Nazareth as the Son of God, the well-beloved Son of God. So at his baptism, Jesus gets what? A new identity. Not Not a new one per se, but his identity is made explicit if you will, right? That as he prays, and I'm assuming again, praying for this empowerment that the Holy Spirit would come upon him, the Holy Spirit does, accompanied with this audible sign and words that Jesus is the beloved son. So again, baptism gives us a new identity. We do not walk away from our baptism the same as we were. We walk away changed and different, right? We walk away with our sins forgiven Uh, In Anglican theology, our sins are forgiven at that point, and we are brought into the church, and and the church affirms that they will do all in their power to to raise that person, if it's an infant, or to help that adult in their walk in faith. We get a new identity at baptism, and we see this with the Samaritans, and we see this even with Jesus himself. And so as we enter into this this season, right, post-Christmas and into Epiphany, as we begin to think about how the gospel comes for all people, it's not just that the gospel comes for all people or is available to all people, but that the gospel radically changes those who accept it. For those who believe it and submit themselves to baptism, they gain a new identity, that of Christian that we become literally like Jesus, the well-beloved sons and daughters of God adopted by him, that like these Samaritans, any enmity that we may have had between others or even between ourselves and God goes away because of this new identity. And so again, if we were baptizing someone tonight, we would get to see this and in person. And I want us to, the next time we get to baptize someone here as a congregation, we'll think about these things, I hope. But, but the celebrating the baptism of Jesus is not just a marker in his life. It, it is that. And it's an important one in as much as the voice from heaven declares that he is the beloved son of God, establishing without doubt the sonship of Jesus to the Father. But again, before we just think of it in those terms, it's also for us, it's a, it's a sign to us that we are new people, that we too have been baptized and received the Holy Spirit or changed people. And so we, we ask the question, or we, we wonder aloud with Isaiah from the Old Testament lesson tonight, where Isaiah says, he begins in verse 1 with, but now. Well, if we went back and read chapter 42, we would realize that what is going on there is um, the, the Israelites are in captivity and, and uh, things are not going well for them. There's despair, right? They're despairing of God's Yahweh's care for them. And Isaiah begins what we now know as chapter 43 with the words, but now. So we ask that question tonight of ourselves, or we ask that, we think in those terms of like, in light of our baptism, what now? In light of this new identity that everyone receives at baptism, what now? In light of this empowerment and this gifting of the Holy Spirit, what now? And this Isaiah passage is really interesting because twice in these short verses, God identifies himself similarly to the way in which Jesus was identified by the voice of the Father. That in verse 1, thus says the Lord, he who created you. So 
God says through Isaiah the prophet to the people, this is, I am the Lord, I created you. And then in verse 3, I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Again, that baptismal kind of language. And I think about when we bless the water at the baptism, the water that God created, we acknowledge that we are using the material means that God has created. But then we sanctify them by blessing them, by asking the Holy Spirit to come and bless those waters. And of course, we're reminded at baptism that, that God is the Savior of all people, that that's what Jesus has come for, is to save us. So God says, I created you. God says, I am your Savior. And then after he identifies himself twice, he gives them a command, and the command's the same, fear not. Fear not. It's the same command that we heard at Christmas, right? Fear not to the shepherds. Fear not, Mary, that you're going to be the mother of Jesus. So we are told to not fear that the God who creates, the God who saves, the God who gives us this new identity, who makes us new in him as his sons and daughters, we are not to fear And then God makes promises to these Israelites, which are just as true for us. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Verse 2. And then in verse 5, I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west, I will gather you. That promise of being regathered. Right? Just as true for us as it was for Israel, that, that in this world, as we walk through this world, as we navigate these difficult days and seasons, not just collectively in a fallen world, but personally, through our own trials, through our own ups and downs, that we have this confidence that God will be with us. And we have this confidence that he will gather us to himself. And not just in the eschaton, but certainly there at the end of days, God will bring us all together. But yet we take comfort in the fact that knowing that we are Christians, that we have been given this new identity, we are in a new relationship with God by way of our baptism. And so God makes these promises to us that as he reveals himself to us, as he, as he has revealed himself to us, that we are not to fear, but we are to have peace and comfort knowing that we will be with God and that he will take care of us. So again, thinking about those Samaritans who are now new people, everything has changed for them, right? After centuries of kind of being that mixed race group of people, second-class citizens of a sort, that now they too are Christians, that they have had their identity changed, that these apostles have come, prayed over them, Uh, laid their hands on them. The Spirit has settled upon them, showing that he is just as much their spirit and their God as he is of the Jewish people, and anticipating what's to come in Acts of all people. And so as we think about the baptism of Jesus, as we think about our own baptism, we realize that it ripples through our lives. And we have the opportunity tonight to revisit our own baptismal vows, to think about the relationship that we are in with Jesus, the relationship we are in with God, that we are in spirited people. And so as we reflect and as we think about that, we ask ourselves, but now what? What do we do in light of that? Again, we're not to fear, but we're to walk boldly. We're not to fear, but we are to live out this this holy spirited life that we have been given. And as I said before, from this pulpit, mostly that means oftentimes just staying out of the way of ourselves and letting God do the good work in us that he is doing and wants to do. So as we enter into this this new year, 
as our students and faculty at Biola and other schools enter into this new semester, and as all of us reflect on the birth of Jesus, that the gospel is for all people, that, that we are baptized people, may we uh, live into the fullness of the fact that we have been inspirited by God's Holy Spirit, that we do not need to fear that God is for us and will be with us and that he gathers us together no matter what is going on. So may we rest in him, believing that what he has done in us will continue to bear good fruit in the days ahead. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.